Hey, welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of the Faith and Coffee Brewcast with Eric Letterman. Faith and Coffee is a blog and podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. I'm Eric Letterman, pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Tempe, Arizona. Whether you're driving, sitting, and enjoying a cup of coffee, or whatever you're doing, I'm glad you're here. Hey everybody, welcome to the Brewcast. I am joined today by my good friend, the Reverend Tim Scheip. He is the clinical manager and CPE educator at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington, which is a a level one trauma center. He is also the husband and father of two girls. His wife, Mary Lynn Doe, is a per diem chaplain actually at Children's Hospital, also in Seattle. And uh, we all went to seminary together and hung out together. And you and I met George Lucas sort of together. <laughs> we didn't of. know it at the time. We just didn't know him. Yeah, we didn't recognize him at the time. Uh, so Tim, welcome to the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on. It's good to see you, my friend. It is good to see you. Thank you for the invitation. How long has it been since we've actually like laid eyes on each other? It's oh been my a goodness. long time. It's been years, I think. Your brewcast folks can't tell, but I don't have any hair. We may, I may have had hair last time we were together. So. A little, <laughs> a little more. That was a while ago. <laughs> All right. Well, Tim, thanks so much for coming on. Um, so you are a chaplain and you're a CPE supervisor, educator. What exactly is CPE? For, the, for all of those who have gone to seminary, who are ordained, who have gone through that ordination process, they all know what CPE is. But for those who aren't, could you explain exactly what CPE is? Absolutely. Yeah. So individuals who are getting trained for a ministry um, who want to focus on the parish do an internship uh, or a year, however long, in a parish setting. And for individuals that are interested in doing ministry in a healthcare setting, such as a hospital, a hospice, long-term care facility, there are internships and residencies in hospitals. And my hospital happens to be one center of many around the country. Um, and it's a process of learning to, I think of it as looking uh, more effectively outward as one looks more intently inward. Ministry is about relationship. So what are the things that get in the way of relationship? That tends to be the attitudes and assumptions that a person brings into their ministry. So CPE is a process of um, encountering other people, trying to make real efforts to help real people in pain while being a student of self. And uh, I'm feeling very privileged to be a part of that education. So what do you oftentimes see in your in your students? What are some of the things that, as you say, get in the way of that? What are some things that that you try to help them recognize? Yeah, great question. So one of the primary things uh, that I encounter with students and I encountered in myself when I went through CPE is um, I learned a lot of great things from my family of origin and from my earliest caretakers, but um, I didn't learn one, for example, how to deal effectively with conflict. Um, anger in my family of origin led to danger and sometimes uh, violence even. 
And so um, I didn't have many role models to show me how to get angry or voice frustration in healthy ways. So that's really hindered my ability to promote intimacy in a lot of ways because anger is a natural emotion. When I um, journey with students, they bring in some of the healthy ways and some of the unhealthy ways they have learned to deal with situations and other people. A lot of folks uh, have learned and grown up in a particular community, and um, many people don't have an experience of encountering folks outside of their own faith tradition or even culture. So CPE encourages people to encounter the new. Um, How do you relate to someone and care for someone who doesn't speak the same language as you or someone who looks very different? And uh, I think we're in a a period of time in our current world where learning to encounter the other and be more mindful and intentional about our own blind spots is more important now than ever before. Well, it seems like people are much more coming into contact with people who are different than them, not just ethnically or racially, but even ideologically, theologically, spiritually, emotionally, it seems like we're getting more diverse in our, in our connections, Mm -hmm. but that seems to be creating more division rather than understanding, at least in the broader culture, it seems at least what we see on the news, which may be sensationalized. I get that. (laughs) Yeah, I, I do hear you. And I think what's newsworthy right now unfortunately is what is sensational what what is uh selling newspapers or subscriptions to cable news is um not the kindness and courage that some people are showing by reaching out to people who look different or or think differently so every day you know in the context of the hospital harborview is a place where people come from all over the world a lot of refugees um a lot of uh, folks that are fleeing religious political persecution. And so I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. It's a county hospital. Um, It's really the safety net for people. So homeless individuals, people struggling with addiction who have burnt bridges in other places. So uh, in order to do ministry in that setting, a person has to get beyond their comfort zone, uh, be able to reach out. Um, And so that's, I really appreciate it about that particular perspective, but you don't see that type of thing on the evening news. You don't see someone reaching out. Um, when you hear about immigrants or refugees, you know, unfortunately it's about immigration laws and people coming to steal jobs and, um, it's partisan. It becomes partisan. Yeah, it does. It I mean, does. not just political. Cause I always try and tell people po- politics is neutral. Politics mm-hmm. is just, you know, Greek word polis. It's how we're going to live together. It means city. That's all it means partisan politics are the divisions where we start to get into our little camps. Um, But it seems to be the sensationalization of those things in the news is also informing people's um, how they're going to interact with somebody who's different. It feels like the people are being emboldened to uh, blame, be emboldened to um, look down upon others who are different as opposed to what I think is normal. I think the normal is I don't know you or understand you and look differently. You look different, but I'm curious. Mm-hmm. I, I really do believe that that's inherently normal. That's our, that's our natural. We, we're, we're curious creatures. Absolutely. 
but these divisions are sort of cutting off our curiosity, mm-hmm. even about ourselves, as you were talking about with the CPE program, which is Absolutely. scary. Yeah, it is. And when we aren't our, at our best healthy selves, where we're curious and we're explorers, <laughs> um, yeah. we get rather enamored with the familiar. And I think, you know, the, the larger partisan political narrative is got to fear the other. And that's, uh, there's so much learning and connection um, that can happen when we get a little beyond our comfort zone. And yeah, being in, in Seattle, um, working at a level one trauma center, that's a place where I get to saunter beyond my comfort zone quite often. That's awesome. So how did you get into the chaplain gig? What, what drew you to that? What, I mean, what drew you to seminary? What drew you even to decide to get it and to leave and look at ministry? Cause so for those of you out there, our Tim's Tim and I story, um, our story starts before <laughs> Tim actually came to San Francisco theological seminary. Um, he was an, you were an inquirer and I had started the semester before and I was asked to take out this prospective student to dinner and we went to my favorite, because the only time I could go to my favorite Mexican place was when I had the, <laughs> se- the seminary credit card because I couldn't afford it. And that's where we saw, met, sort of met George Lucas. Yeah. Um, he was sitting literally across from us. And then the, the, the waitress came over and was like, do you even know who that was? I'm like, no. And she shows us the credit card slip and there's a signature, George Lucas. And we're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I think we leaned over and asked him what was good on the menu. Yeah. And, and well, he had something on, I remember he had something and I'd been there a bunch of times, but I, I, whatever he had, I don't even remember what it was. And I was like, what, what is that? And he was kind of annoyed at first. I said, pardon me, I think. And I leaned over and I said, what is that? And suddenly his demeanor changed and he got so excited. Oh, you got to try. Oh, this is really good. You got to do this. You got to do this. And, and then, so I think he finally realized, oh, they don't know who I am. (laughs) I think that's why he decided to talk to us. Otherwise, you wouldn't like, oh gosh, Star Wars fanboys, geez. So, but yeah, it was really funny. So, but so tell me what happened to, um, or how did you get into chaplaincy? How did you get into, how did you decide to go to seminary? What was yeah, that process like for you? Great question. There, there's a story within a story within a story. I Ministry first it Usually occurred, is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially with you and I, there's always a story. Right? So I first decided and felt called to ministry um, probably in middle school and initially, um, rather shallowly, <laughs> I was attracted to ministry because my pastor was a powerful person in the community and it was a wealthy church. It was a big church and he lived in a nice house and drove a nice car. And I thought, Hey, that's, that's what I want to do. He's important. People go to him. And when I went off to college, I met a pastor who was a campus minister and a church relations person. And that's the first time that my notion of ministry expanded a little bit. I'm like, oh, wow, this is ministry too. And then I went to um, a retreat center after college in North Carolina, uh, Christ Mount, right down the road from Montreat. Um, And I met a minister who was a camp and uh, counselor uh, and host for people that wanted to come on retreat. And I thought, oh, this is ministry. So my, my notion of ministry expanded a little more. And then in seminary, I met a hospice chaplain and she was going into people's homes and encountering people at the end of their life. And I thought, wow. And so my notion of ministry kept expanding, which was really cool. And it was in shadowing 
a hospice chaplain that I really fell in love with being led by the Holy Spirit into a day that I couldn't predict. Um, I think I have something akin to a, a excessive attention disorder. <laughs> so the new, <laughs> the, the changing really feeds me and, and feeds my soul. So what better place than chaplaincy to always encounter, there's a revolving door of people coming and going. And why I settled in chaplaincy, quite honestly, and had done hospice work for 13 years before moving to uh, Harborview, um, I once read a book about a 16th century cartographer in the court of Venice. Um, the the book was wow, called The Map is, Maker's this is, Dream. This is going off on a tangent. Okay, go ahead. No, no. no. <laughs> I'm real curious where the connection is. Go ahead. Yeah. So this um, this cartographer made one of the earliest, most accurate maps of the world without ever leaving his cell. So how could he do that? Um, he did it because people from all over the world came to him and shared stories of where they had been. And so the world is too big for me to get everywhere I want to go. But what I know of the divine and what I know of, of the world is really from these people I sit with from all over the world who share their stories. So I've learned about God that way. I've learned about the world and myself through that. So that's why chaplaincy fits for me and why I stay there. But you didn't know that going into it, did you? I didn't. It caught me. <laughs> and where, where, when, when did it catch you? Uh, in seminary. when when uh, I think one of our first uh, classes was to shadow different people in different settings. And I was so fascinated with going into people's homes and um, hearing them talk. And what attracted me to end of life care is that when people know their time is limited, they tend to speak a little more courageously. Mm. And I, I like those conversations more than the surface level banter. Wow. And so what kind of insights has that led you to about about God and your relationship with God. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, we do only have, you know, 45 minutes left, but, <laughs> you know, but yeah. all right. So, um, for God to create these human beings from, uh, different parts of the world, God has to be magnificent. And for God to call forth life in the form of birth, God has to be magnificent. And for seeing people reconcile who have been at odds with one another for 20 years to see reconciliation there or reconciliation between communities. Um, God has to be amazing for these things to happen. And so I learn about God. I learn about um, resurrection, which is so important to me during a time of COVID and um, seeing people, uh, uh, encounter life in new ways and encounter themselves be a different type of parent or brother or pastor. Um, there, there is so much to learn and, um, I don't want to romanticize life in a level one trauma center because there's a lot of tragedy. There's trauma, there's grief, right? Uh, there's spitting and kicking, there's mental illness. And, um, but there is quite a bit of beauty there is quite a bit of uh, of hope and resilience that feed me. So, I mean, you're in Seattle, which was the 
one of the many epicenters <laughs> that we've had for this whole COVID pandemic. Yeah. Um, I, and, and Seattle was also one of the centers for the Black Lives Movement mm-hmm. uh, protests, uh, or it became one of the centers. Um, what, what was that little area that they designated? What was it called? Yeah, the CHOP. The, the CHOP. Yeah. The police free zone. Is that what you said? Yeah, the Capitol Hill organized protest zone or chop oh, for okay. short. <laughs> nice. So, I mean, being mainly I'm thinking about COVID because I think that's more uh, hitting people more than the Black Lives Movement matter is for better or for worse. Being in a chaplain and being a chaplain in a level one trauma center, man, what has that been like, especially with your students? I mean, how are they handling it? How are the, the staff at the hospital handling it? How are are you connecting with uh, families? Um, mm-hmm. You know, they can't go to see their loved ones because most, I don't know about Seattle, but most hospitals aren't even allowing family in right, right. now. Or if they are at best one and they have, it has to be the same one the whole time kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. What's that been like for you? Well, it it's not lost on me that COVID really touched down and Seattle became the early epicenter um, during Lent. Oh yeah. Yeah. One of, one of the, yeah. One of the earliest documented cases of a COVID death in the U S occurred. Um, one of my students had, uh, on good Friday, um, not good Friday, excuse me, Ash Wednesday had gone around the hospital and, uh, the student had, um, placed ashes on the forehead of a person who later uh, died and tested positive. Oh, wow. And so that was really the beginning and that it would happen during Lent during that season that we are encouraged to be reflective. Um, that isolation that came as a result of COVID sort of required people to, um, lose the distractions that they might normally participate in and be a little more mindful of what we do and where we go. So um, it took a toll on the staff. Um, In particular, um, I spoke with physicians who uh, had not gone to medical school to be a surrogate parent or child for someone who's dying. So a family was not allowed at the bedside and the doctor had to hold a phone or an iPad and communicate last wishes um, to family or say goodbyes. Um, nurses were were having to do that. And I went into a few COVID positive rooms and just the, the layers of preparation and protective gear that you have to put on, nurses were going in and out of those rooms in 12 hour shifts and they were worn out. They were weary, um, having to call families. Um, and explain what was going on, uh, having to say no to families, not to come into the hospital. That was so hard. Um, I also, at the same time, uh, found myself talking to doctors and nurses and administrators who may not normally have been accessible, but Mm. because they were weary, that opened up a possibility to care for them and hear about their experience. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, I, you know, I, so Tim and I both among others did our, did a, a, 
um, stint at Marin General Hospital while we were in seminary, which is in Marin County, north of San Francisco. Uh, And uh, Bruce Murphy was the director. Bruce Murphy, right? Yeah. Uh, was the director and he was an ordained Lutheran minister in the ELCA. He was actually a certified CPE uh, supervisor, but he chose to do things a little differently than the official CPE program. And it was just down the road from the seminary. I rode my bike when the pager went off in the middle of the night. I did you know, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause it was only a few miles away. Um, you know, and one of one time we had a TB, a tuberculosis patient and I had to, and he said, Eric, you're going to go in. I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't. Well, first of all, because you, you have to put a face mask on. You, and, and I'm sure the preparations for TV weren't nearly as much as what they're doing for COVID. But, you know, I had to put a mask on. I'm like, well, I've got facial hair. I've got a goatee. I, you know, I can't do it. He's like, well, I've got a beard and you're the only one here. So go. <laughs> so and I was I was the one on duty. So I went and I, and I was terrified that I was going to get tv and i'm like okay and afterwards i was i kept going and saying okay do i need to get tested again do i need to get tested i was freaking out right that was terrifying i can't imagine being in a hospital that is full of contagious patients with a disease that can kill you the pressure i can't i mean you said you went into a covid did you go did you go into multiple covid rooms or just one in particular? yeah i went into a couple different and so how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, with, with fear and trepidation, um, I don't know that it got to be routine for anyone because you have um, a spotter. So there's one person who's just in charge of watching you get dressed and helping you put on the ventilator and the paper mask and then you know double checks everything before you go in and then helps you come out of the room and decontaminate. So it's a, it takes like, 15 minutes to get ready to go in and then to come back out. That's a half an hour right there and doing so many visits. So, um, and I didn't have near, all I had was like one of those, the equivalent of what would be the N95 kind of mask yeah, gloves yeah. and a paper gown. That's all I had. Yeah. <laughs> I see the TV and I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm watching what these people are putting on and they've got way more gear than I ever had. Right. Wait a minute. You know, I'm, I don't know everything about, tuberculosis and the contagion and how contagious it is, but it was still pretty scary. I guess. Yeah, but it was still pretty scary. I can't imagine. That's the thing I've been thinking about with all the staff, the nurses, the doctors, the, um, at one hospital, I was hearing that the chaplain wasn't even allowed to go in because they weren't medical personnel. So I don't know if they ever did that at a Harborview, but it was like, they were only letting medical personnel in. And I can't imagine the, the weight that they carried, not just the equipment that they had to put on, but the weight that they carried walking into that room, especially yeah. if they have family at home. I mean, you've got wife and two kids. Right. Absolutely. It, the scariest thing for most staff, they would tell you is what they're bringing home, not mm. maybe what they're picking up themselves, but what they're bringing home. Because the, the wisdom is you find a, a place in your house to get out of your clothes and then shower and put those clothes in the washer right away to be very careful because the virus has a shelf life. So it no doubt, hands down, most people were concerned what they're bringing home to their elderly parent, to their kids. Um, Especially when we didn't even know quite what it was and how it absolutely. worked. So what is it like now? 
It is. Um, I mean, has, ha- Washington's kind of leveled out, right? It is leveled out. Or decline. It, it's creeping back up again. Um, okay. And there, there's a weariness, um, an anxiousness about what the fall will be with the flu season. So there's, um, there are some places in Washington that are hotspots, um, native lands and Yakima, um, mm-hmm. in Eastern Washington. There. Yeah, you have. I did a mission trip there when I was in, oh, when I came home from college, I think I led a, helped lead a mission trip to Yakima. Cool. Yeah. So there, there's Sorry, some hotspots. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> um, and those folks are coming because capacity is, is reached at other places. Um, well, they the just state. have these little tiny absolute hospitals. They're, I mean, they're like trauma centers better than anything. I mean, triage centers rather more than they are actual hospitals. Some of those outlier when I was in Western New York, our little, we had a small hospital. Um, you know, we were in a village of 2,200 people in a township of 5,500 people. I mean, it was rural. We had a little tiny hospital, but they were constantly airlifting people up to Buffalo, mm-hmm. which was about an hour, hour and a half drive, depending on where you're going, but oftentimes to university of Buffalo medical center. Um, and there was only just only so much they could do. They, it, it was right. literally triage. It was treatment stream. It was, um, you know, comfort care. Uh, and they were able to do a lot. I mean, the doctors and the nurses there were, were amazing, but yeah, they don't, they don't really have the wherewithal and, and the equipment, let alone the mm-hmm. experience to be able to treat that kind of stuff. Right. I can't imagine. Well, and one, one of the things that sort of occurred in, in my care of patients, because we serve a lot of refugees and immigrants. Um, some of the uh, terms and phrases and concepts that you heard in the news were traumatizing and re-traumatizing. So when you heard uh, the term essential staff, essential workers, those that had uh, Jewish heritage and had family and loved ones uh, in concentration camps heard that as a particular way that was traumatizing to them. And images of New York hospitals with bodies piled up um, was traumatizing for individuals um, from other countries who uh, come from places where mass graves are, are part of the narrative. So that was, um, that was eye opening to me. Some of these things that we nonchalantly heard in the news that sort of fly right by landed on some people. uh, And what do you do with that as a chaplain? Yeah. So, um, what I did was I listened <laughs> in, invited, um, empathized with, uh, allowed people to share their painful memories. Um, mm. the doctors didn't have the time, uh, nurses, social workers didn't have the time to listen. Uh, but chaplains did and helping people make sense of what they're seeing on the news and, uh, listening to those stories that some of them, those stories haven't been shared because uh, kind of like veterans, some of these folks didn't want to re-traumatize their family by sharing some of these stories. And so are there having, some stories you could share without violating confidence? Um, yeah. There, well, um, uh, sitting with a refugee whose family uh, had uh, at some point had been killed at gunpoint because there was uh, uh, conflict over land and farm farms and animals on the farm. And uh, the village was mowed down by a local person of power. I'm not 
sure what the name would be lord or yeah uh, whatever chieftain or chieftain or yeah just a a conflict over land and so uh the bodies were piled up and i happened to be sitting with a person when there was an interview with a physician from new york um and they showed uh these bodies being brought out of the hospital and they were talking about morgues being overrun um there was one story about some uh, uh, trucks that have been brought in trailers, cooled trailers, and they were storing bodies in there. And they showed pictures of that. And that was just traumatizing to this uh, man who he saw those white sheets and, and body bags and he was right back there. Wow. So um, that is, uh, that's not something that, you know, when I, when I would normally look at that, I would say on the news, that's sad, that's tragic, but it hit him. And it hit other people in such a deeper way. So, I, I mean, you're only going to see these people for usually a pretty short amount of time. You know, you're not going to be able to do the long-term work of trying to help them, at least spiritually, work through some of that stuff. You know, obviously counseling, psychological counseling can really help. Um, our, you know, we're sort of limited within the spiritual sphere, <laughs> a spiritual, emotional sort of. Uh, we're not licensed clinicians, uh, psychological clinicians. What do you do in the midst of that? I mean, I, I kind of remember my CPE. A lot of it is reflecting back, listening, and then every once in a while reflecting back. I mean, what do you, is that what they're still teaching in CPE? Yeah. Well, what, what I tell my students is that regardless of the room you go into, whether that person speaks the same language or grew up in the same corner of the planet or is Republican or, or Democrat, there's a primal uh, spiritual need to be seen, to be heard, to be understood. And there's so many things that are isolating in the hospital and in our larger world. Uh, so what I can do is facilitate inclusion. I can enable a person to have an experience of being seen and heard. And that's uh, that can begin a healing for someone. Like you said, only have a limited amount of time, but We've all, I think, had situations where we were in front of someone who really didn't see us <laughs> or understand. And that lasts a little while, right? The residue of that. like, uh, um, So very impactful when a person can be noticed. So you're listening to all these stories, this, this gentleman who's a refugee. How do, how do you take care of yourself? How do you personally deal with all that? How do you... I mean, you can't help but take that home with you. But how do you deal with it? Because it's, it's they're not your stories. Yeah. They're someone else's stories. They're someone else's experience. But people who go into ministry have a tendency to take on other people's emotional baggage. Yeah. Because we're caring, compassionate people. And we it's very easy to succumb to that. How do you, yeah. what are some of the, some of the self-care practices that you have? Great question um a variety of things the the last hand washing of the day before i leave the hospital is the longest so i I linger at the sink and i i imagine the stuff that i've heard that's weighing me down wash away wow and my daughters that you mentioned uh 14 and 10 i play legos and i get my nails done i get a pedicure (laughs) before covid we were allowed to get pedicure um i journal and paint and walk and fish um i have to renew uh therapy seeing a good counselor 
um, laughing. Uh, those are all things that I have to do. Um, and so, sometimes it's cry. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll see something, hear something, and I'll just burst into tears. And um, there's power. That's powerful. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I tell people sometimes on Fridays on my day off, my Sabbath day, I'll actually intentionally watch like a sad movie. Um, mm. If I'm feeling like I've got a lot going on or if I'm taking on people's stuff that sometimes just watching a sad movie and, and just literally having a really good cry is just so powerful and so freeing. Um, yeah. You, as you mentioned that I, during the height of COVID, I think I was watching TV and something and a Toyota commercial came on and it was like a salute to COVID workers. <laughs> And I burst into tears. Oh, I'm like, yeah, well, that would what? hit you right at home, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, you're one of them. There are all these, yeah, there, there are all these different commercials from people were saying, oh, hey, thanks. And there, there were some really kind of cool, creative things that I, I just needed to emote. So, what else do you do for fun? I, um, I've been get, getting into anime. Yeah. Um, my daughters are huge anime fans. And, you know, um, I was sort of leery and wondered about that at the beginning, but there's some amazing theological themes um, in anime nowadays. Really? So, absolutely. Um, So, I've I've been marveling at um, some of the animes that my daughters watch. And um, speaking of marveling also superheroes i'm I'm really into archetypes okay and into personas and so there's there's some cool theological themes in superhero land and in anime that gives me sort of an outlet a creative outlet to talk yeah i don't i don't know anime i i do like even in the marvel and dc comics and all that stuff there the the theological content or the the not necessarily theological, but the uh, sort of meaning of life kind of mm-hmm. questions are just all over the place. And, and there is some theological points that they make that are, I don't think people recognize them that they actually come from the world of theology, but I think mm-hmm. it's, it's fascinating that it's sort of this undertone throughout. So what is it in anime? What do you see in anime? Um, that would be, you know, if, if you want to have a, uh, Brewcast sometime just on on anime. One of my kiddos oh my. might <laughs> join oh, you totally in conversation. To yeah, totally. We'll have to do that because I'm curious. I don't. I have not watched a lot of anime, and I don't necessarily. I'm not into it, but it's not something I couldn't be. <laughs> yeah, just the the idea of hope and hopelessness, and in um, unlikely heroes and heroines and um, resurrection and. Uh, sacraments <laughs> sacraments all, all of that is there yeah in terms of um finding different images of communion um that that is such a rich theme um in a lot of anime like um the con it it's not intentionally there is communion but when you look at um the sharing of food and the story behind food and um where those stories come from and cultures that you can't but help think of uh, the Eucharist. And um, it's so amazing. We were talking about COVID earlier, um, finding creative ways to have Eucharist in the presence of, of COVID. So 
I, I learned about these things through watching anime. The the sharing of food there there is uh, so much. Like one of the animes that they watch is uh, called Food Wars, and on on one plane it's about uh, young people who are trying to master the art of cooking, and in order to do that, they have to um, not only hone the dishes of their own culture and country, but they have to master the culinary arts of other lands. And, and so they're put up against uh, these tests and they are pitted against one another. And when you see people come up with a particular dish and then share that with people who have been protagonists or have been um, uh, in a rival cooking school or something the, the the sharing and the restoring of relationship that happen over uh, these meals is is pretty amazing and a person has to not only the chefs learn the ingredients but where they came from and their significance and why they go together um, or don't so there's just an amazing array of uh, theological significance for me. Do, do you have Netflix? Do you watch Netflix? I do. Yeah. So Zach Efron <clears throat> of what was the, the high school musical, whatever that yeah. he was in. And uh-huh. then he was also in um, the circus one. Uh, he, he has a new mini series out where they go around. He and this guy, uh, Daniel, oh, I can't remember his last name. He's like a superfoods guru. Mm-hmm. And they're going around. I'm not a huge Zac Efron fan, but now I am because the show was amazing. And so much of it was about food mm-hmm. and good food uh, that actually feeds not only the body, but the soul. Yeah. And they talk about, you know, how much processed food we eat in the West mm-hmm. and how much our food just doesn't seem to have. And our, and our, our food balance is all out of whack. Um, but they talk about food in terms of relationship and it was a really, so I did my whole doctor of ministry on Eucharist. That was my focus and, and the power and how we need to broaden that table and understand that table in much broader terms. So like, for instance, at the coffee shop or, you know, sitting here sharing a cup of coffee, you know, virtually like what, you know, whatever the, whatever the, there are all kinds of different ways to experience, um, Eucharist, the giving thanks, the, uh, the meal of communion with God and with one another. And it's just, but that show just, I just watched it like this last week binged it's like six six episodes or something like that and i just i practically over two or three days i binged the whole thing and it was just again it brought back that whole how powerful food can be not just physically uh, although that's important um but also emotionally they went to these blue zones mm-hmm. and are you familiar with those no oh so blue zones are areas where there's a high concentration of centarians people who have turned 100 years old and this guy happened to have a blue marker and he would m- plot anytime somebody was over a hundred, he'd plot them on the map and it became, because it was blue, it became blue zones. Huh. Totally random. <laughs> um, but now it's a thing and there's like seven or eight blue zones in the world. Uh, one in Japan, uh, one in Italy. Uh, and I don't remember where the other ones were. In fact, there's a, there's a couple books on it now, but it, a lot of it centered on food and the kind of food that they eat and how healthy that can be. And it's not just eating vegetarian. Not all of them are vegetarian. A lot of them are. 
but it's about eating with people. Yeah. And the communal making of the food, even the process of making the food and how that brings people together and how much, I mean, tonight, literally before you and I started talking, I had to run out real quick to Filiberto's <laughs> to get a carne asada burrito for my wife and a fish taco for my son. And I've got a fish burrito sitting down there waiting for me. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, it, all this time, food constantly is in the front of my brain. But in our culture, it is so hard to address that as a spiritual element in our lives. And Absolutely. how, again, it, it's about how communion goes beyond, I say this even when I'm doing, when I'm leading communion in our church, that this table uh, stretches well beyond the walls of the sanctuary. And especially now that we're doing virtual worship. So many churches are doing virtual worship on Zoom or pre-recorded um, and you know, inviting people have a piece of bread and a cup ready to go right? so that we can have communion together separately. And much more powerful when you know that you're not alone in doing it. And that's what I found. People are really, um, they feel connected because they know that there are other people. We're going to be moving to all, because we've been pre-recording our worship. And in August, we're going to be moving toward uh, a live Zoom style worship. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually Mm -hmm. going to share communion. We'll be able to see each other while we're sharing communion. Uh, and, and I think it's going to be a different experience. I hope a more powerful experience for people, but, but even just the pre-recorded stuff, knowing that we're, we're sharing in communion with one another. Cause we all watch the video at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's like a premiere feature on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and so, but it's been, it's been really interesting hearing people's reflections on how communion has really grown for them as I've, I was exploring it during my doctor of ministry program. And then of course, afterwards, it just keeps coming up. And we keep talking about it and I'm not even trying to bring it. I'm like, like, I don't, Oh, we don't need to talk about that all the time. I know that's my thing, but, yeah. but it keeps coming up Absolutely. and it's such a powerful image in our life now and how much we're not really engaging it mm-hmm. with fast food and all that stuff. Anyway, most definitely. So anime. All right. I'm going to have to watch it now. I'm going to start watching anime. Anime. So yeah. Anime. Now, are there any shows that you would recommend? I would. Time? <laughs> Absolutely. Um Howl's Moving Castle. What is it? Howl's Moving Castle. H O W uh H O W L S. Howl's Moving, Moving Castle. Castle. Anything okay. by Studio Ghibli. They're, Studio Ghibli. They're just visionaries and and creative. So um And what was the food one you said? Food Wars? Food Wars. Yeah. Is that a good one? It is. Um, Panyo, the Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> the Full Metal Alchemist. That's redundant. The metal. <laughs> Avatar, the Last Airbender. Um, and you know that, in in a serious way, there are folks, a younger generation of people who are, um, you know, learning themes that. I typically learned in a Sunday school class. Um, my kids are learning those themes by watching and discussing these anime programs because really? that's more attention getting than sitting in a class. So the whole generation of people growing up with anime and it's the, that's crazy. Yeah. So, so anime helps you deal with everything that's going on at work. It's part of my self care. 
It's a creative outlet. Does it help you or is it kind of an escape or a little bit of both? A little bit of both. Or something else? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. (laughs) A little bit of both. I turned to like John Wick for a brain bleach as... Nice. As Mia called it. So that's Brain the escape. Bleach. I love that. Yes, definitely. John Wick will do that. Yeah. It's yeah. a nice escape. Yeah. I, I love movies and I watch a lot of movies and it is kind of an escapism for me. It's a, it's to turn my brain off in one way and turn it on in a totally different way. It's, mm-hmm. it's just so, so different. And I do watch a lot of action flicks or, um, I don't watch a lot of drama. I've been mm-hmm. watching a lot of period pieces lately. Like okay. Civil War. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, what's the one that's on uh, HBO? She goes back in time. I can't remember the name of it now. Mm. Anyway, but yeah, a lot of she goes back to like the 1700s England. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm watching a lot of that. I don't know. For some reason, I'm attracted to that kind mm. of stuff. Again, it's just because it's so different. Absolutely. I get that. It just kicks my mind into a totally different place. And, and we need that, too. It is a little bit of escape them, but I, but I also learn a lot from them about relationships and there is, there is some power. Absolutely. In that. I think we need that. Hollywood does have a purpose. <laughs> it does. Although it does increase our screen time then, doesn't it? A little bit. <laughs> oh, well. So are you reading any books lately? Yes, I am. What I'm, are you reading? That's been interesting. I'm always reading. Um, you know, in particular during COVID when I felt like I was on uh, needing more connection with nature because I spent so much time in the hospital. Um, I started reading uh, a book called Brady and Sweetgrass. Um, it's a, a book written by a native American woman and uh, scientist, a botanist. And she weaves together both her scientific and and cultural knowledge and it's really about the the relationship that we're missing out on in nature and um that fed me because i live in western washington i'm surrounded by trees i started to look out and i was like sad because i didn't know the name of that tree out my window and there's a beautiful array of trees i'm like how would i relate to my neighborhood if i knew the plants you know, some something simple like that. So, started reading that. Um, yeah, we don't we don't learn that stuff in suburbia or Urbania. <laughs> well, you have different <laughs> trees in the desert there, don't you? Yeah, we can call them trees. Actually, they're bushes that people trim into trees. Like mesquite is actually a giant bush, oh. but people constantly are trimming it into a tree. But it's really not supposed to be a tree. I have one in my front yard that I've tried to kill twice. Oh, it keeps coming back. See, resurrection. It won't die. It won't die. No, it just never dies. Oh, okay. It never it's dies. Immortal. It's seriously, we've even had the stump ground. I've poisoned it because when we first bought the house, it was leaning into, it was like, it had this long trunk that was going off to the side and it was literally resting on the house. Mm. So we had to have it trimmed back and we're like, well, it's, you know, let's just take the thing out. It's a big monstrous, whatever. And it's messy. Yeah. We've tried tried killing it and now i have to trim it back as well before the hoa gets on me uh <laughs> they love to send me notices i think i'm one of their favorite houses i keep them in business customer of not the a, month not a fan of hoas <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we don't yeah yeah then we've got the sorrows and i mean there's there's beauty in the desert in ways that there i didn't is. recognize until 
um, until we moved here. I remember when we came to visit you, you were down at St. Mark's yeah. Presbyterian Church in Tucson where you did your internship and we came to visit you one time and our, in our, when I, back when I had my, uh, Jeep Cherokee, right. My, and the air conditioner went out like before, <laughs> like a couple weeks before we came down. <laughs> and so we're riding in the desert. We would roll up the windows so we would sweat. And then as soon as we couldn't stand anymore, we'd roll the windows down real quick. And just for a moment, we would get that evaporative cooling. <laughs> it's so disgusting. But you, decided to, your, you decided to move there anyway. No, that's you what just, we kept thinking of. We're like, <laughs> Phoenix, do we want to go back to that? And that's supposed to be hotter than Tucson. But we have acclimated. <laughs> but I remember just, we were going to stay with you for several days. And I think after like two days, we're like, <laughs> we're out of here. I can't do it. It's just too blazing hot. But you did take us to that radio station. Do you remember yeah, that? I do. So there was a radio station that was doing a, a hug contest, and there was a male and female disc jockey, and they were testing to see who could come by the station and give them more hugs. Who could get more hugs? I think you hugged the guy, and I hugged the girl. Yeah. <laughs> the woman. <laughs> Good times. Good, Good times. times. Good times. <laughs> Absolutely. So Seattle has been, except for, you know, the last few months, Seattle has been treating you guys well. It has been, um, it, it's been harder for, for Mia because she is from Arizona. So yeah. in particular in the winter, the five hours of daylight is hard for her. Do you guys get down here to visit much? Not too, not too much right now. Yeah. I think she I earned, mean, not right now, yeah. it's, but in the last few years, have you, she has, I haven't honestly been back there since I moved up here uh, 13 years ago. Wow. That's a long time. I am not as enamored with the <laughs> too much beach, not enough ocean. You got, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you got to like, I always tell people the fall and like late fall and winter and spring are just perfect. Mm. You can't. And then probably around May for us. I mean, we keep the AC, the AC, Mm-hmm. in our house is set at 80. Yeah. That's cool for us now. That's just... We go back to visit Cindy's family in San Francisco and it's like 75 degrees. They're all in shorts and t-shirts and we've got coats on. We're like freezing. <laughs> <laughs> it's wet. You know, it's like, Oh no, what are you talking about? It's really dry today. The humidity is only like 45% or something. And I'm going, Oh my gosh, it's above 15. This is killing us. We're going to drown. <laughs> we've got, we've become desert rats. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's good. You've acclimated though. Yeah. It only took us eight years. Mm-hmm. We got there actually with, I'd say with, it took actually probably really did take us like three or four years. Mm-hmm. And now during COVID, we pretty much don't leave the house much. So it's kind of, you're soaking in that really AC. To, yeah. We don't have to really get in the, I, I remember my house in Orange County, the AC was always set at like 70, 72. Yeah. You know, the heat was maybe up to like, you know, during the winter is maybe set at like, Although here, I guess the heat, yeah, we keep the heat up probably about 75, but some people have swamp coolers, don't they? Yeah. Which are terrible in July and August when in Phoenix. So Phoenix has become this heat Island. So Phoenix actually creates this bubble that keeps all those storms away during monsoon season. So we actually don't get much rain. Mm. It goes around us and we're right at that front edge of that bubble. 
So we can sort of see the storms off in the distance and we're like, oh, come to <laughs> us, come. You know, Arizona gets seven inches of rain. Whenever I go anywhere else and it's raining, I go outside and I dance and I just oh, like, yeah. oh, yes. And everybody else is like, you're nuts. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Rain is is miraculous. It's beautiful. <laughs> but yeah, so the swamp coolers are terrible because the swamp coolers are about evaporative cooling. Yeah. We had a swamp cooler when you're in that little place down there. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And a swamp cooler will just make it wetter and then everything's just damp yeah all the time so we actually have ac central ac and most of the homes do there are still some places that have swamp coolers but they're quickly getting replaced by yeah. people who can afford it there but there's is, still people here that don't have ac yeah not very many yeah but there are a few but you know a lot of people just head to the hills during the summer like mm-hmm. june july this place is a ghost town yeah. We're only about a mile. We're a mile, well, the church is about a mile south of Arizona State. Oh, so okay. when ASU is not in um, in session, it's it's like the freeways are open. It's beautiful. Yeah, that's a big difference. Yeah. I mean, freeways being open here is very different than like LA or I imagine Seattle. But yeah. for us, it's like because our freeways are nothing compared to LA or, or Southern California in general, let alone San Francisco or right um, or Seattle. But there, there is a uh, Celtic part of my soul that very much appreciates the sogginess of the Pacific Northwest. I still think it's, be- I, you know, it's funny because here people get the seasonal affect disorder. We get it during the summer when everybody else gets it during the winter because huh. it's so hot. Nobody goes outside. Like I've got my yard is just a weed infestation in the backyard. And I haven't I can't get out there because it's just too by nine o'clock in the morning. It's 100 degrees. You should tether a goat out there. It would die. It would be well fed, but it would die. <laughs> oh no! I don't think it could survive the hundred. It was one hundred and eighteen a few days ago. That's just today. It got up to I think like one hundred and ten or something. I don't. I don't really know. But I, yeah, when you no. have to drive with oven mitts on, I, I call the line. There. <laughs> yeah, there were there have been days. Yes, there have been. We if you put the uh, so we park our cars in such a way that the sun won't get on the steering wheel, and then we put the the uh, windshield covers yeah. up. Because otherwise, yeah, you can't touch the steering wheel. Once you're driving, you're fine because AC is blowing on it. But yeah, it can get pretty damn hot in those cars. I leave my 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 COVID mask in the car because I know it will basically bake. (laughs) Yeah, that's it will be disinfected by the time that I have to go back to it. (laughs) So I don't have to worry about it too much. I don't think there's any science behind that, but it works. (laughs) It makes me happy. Good. I'm with you. (laughs) Oh, well. Man, it is so good to see you. It's good to see you too. It has been way too long. I, I I've loved the exchanging of letters as as we talked about before. That's um, one way I relax and take care of myself is writing letters. And so nice. Thanks for receiving them. Tim, Tim and I have been exchanging handwritten letters, old school, the art of letter writing, mm-hmm. as we say. Yes, indeed, indeed. I don't know if you can hear the air of arrogance in my letters as I write with my felt tip or my, uh, my, uh, uh, fountain pen. You have excellent write, penmanship for your listeners. I actually, when I write your letters, I actually, I actually write them with a dip pen because it's just fun. That's what I do with yours too. <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, we've been exchanging handwritten letters. It's been really nice. We haven't, I think I got out of the habit once COVID hit. I think those will end up in the ministry hall of fame at some point. You think so? Like I, the old uh, Niebuhr letters and uh-huh. 
<laughs> the letter, the Shipe Letterman letters, and we have the Niebuhr brothers, and we have <laughs> someone will write their dissertation on us. Right. <laughs> I love it. If if our kids don't throw them away, like what the hell is this? Yeah, right. Um, my dad's so weird. <laughs> they, it's a handwritten letter. What is this? What is this thing? What's this thing in the upper corner? Is that? <laughs> I think they used to call that a stamp. Whoa. Well, then I, I've also been writing. So, um, I love to write and I, I discovered, I've rediscovered the art of the typewriter. Oh, wow. All right. So I'm grabbing my little Italian sports car of a typewriter. That is this thing is, is an, um, Olivetti lettera 32. And it is a, just a beautiful little, oh, can you hear that? Can you hear that noise? Doesn't that just sound oh just makes me warm. That is cool. So I've actually, yeah, so I've been writing and um I keep feeling like I got a book in me. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. I got a couple of books and I can't seem to get them out. Yeah, not yet. You're a good writer. Well, thank you. Yeah. I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've read your letters. Oh, the letters, the letters, <laughs> right. Sorry. But yeah, this is the beginning of a manuscript about a pastor. Awesome. We'll see. I'm also trying to turn my, I'm still getting some push to try and turn my um, demon uh, thesis into a book. That's been a little harder. I've kind of gotten stuck. Hmm. I'm, I'm at about like 20 some odd thousand words and I'm like stuck. I don't know where to go with it. So. But that one's like nonfiction or yeah, nonfiction. This one's fiction. Yeah. But I love writing and writing with a typewriter. So different. It, it, it slows down the writing and makes me actually think about what I'm putting on the page as opposed to a computer. Cause you can be kind of lazy on a computer Yeah, or I can't be. And so I get lazy with my language. You know, have you seen, uh, the film Obit? No, it, it's, Obit? uh, movie came out a couple years ago but it's based on the obituary writers of the new york times a documentary about them and their lost art or or really dying art yeah and there's an interesting piece about typewriters that you might find interesting yeah really cool movie i go on ebay and i look at typewriters and cindy's like is that your new porn (laughs) it used to be camera um equipment photography which i still do but you're old school. The the uh, there's something definitely sexy about a typewriter. The the sound right. and rhythm and cadence. Right? It, 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 it drives my family nuts. I had to like weatherproof my door <laughs> to try and quiet the sound. I think I actually need to invest in a solid core door because it's you know one of those typical suburban hollow doors. Right. So the sound still goes through, but I I think I need to invest in a solid core door because it drives them crazy. God, it's a typewriter again downstairs turn up the turn up the tv (laughs) i think it's cool i I may be one of two people who think that's cool but i think it's cool well thank you to both of you (laughs) i'm I'm trying to get between 1500 and 2000 words a day we'll see that's about what is that it's about 250 it's about eight pages Mm -hmm. it's about 250 words a page give or take so i'm trying Cool. There's, I've missed a lot of days. <laughs> well, and, and maybe you need to sometimes if you had to 
do it, it probably would not come out as easily as if it were yeah. an assignment. I mean, it feels my, yeah, it feels my full-time job. That would be different. I don't know if I could do it as a full-time thing. Mm-hmm. I was writing, um, so we had our general assembly a couple weeks ago and I got to um, write a few articles for the Outlook, the Presbyterian Outlook, which is one of our, it's an independent magazine, yeah. but they write mm-hmm. about the Presbyterian church. So it was, I was like, oh, it takes me back to my journalism days. It was fun. That's so cool. <laughs> so they've printed a bunch of my photos in the past. So yeah. What is it? Jack of all trades, master of none. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's that AD, ADD, ADHD thing. Like, <laughs> Ooh, shiny. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, pretty. I get that. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Burrito. Hey. <laughs> anyway, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the Brewcast. You are awesome. Thank you, uh, sir. I hope someday we'll be able to get, maybe we can get you and Mia on here if she's okay having her voice recorded. She doesn't have to listen <laughs> okay. to it afterwards. Um, but I miss you guys a ton. Yeah. It, it's so. good to talk with you. And hello to Cindy and your family as well. Thank you. I will definitely, definitely pass that on. And I will, uh, I will see you in the mail. All right. At some point. Stupendous. I'm bringing that word back, by the way. Stupendous. That is a wonderful word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stupendous. Oh, that's stupendous. I like it. I like it. I'm going to help you bring that word back. Excellent. Hey, thank you for your ministry through, through this venue. It's really cool. I'm glad. You can contact Faith and Coffee at Eric, E-R-I-C, at faithandcoffee.com. The Faith and Coffee Brewcast is a podcast about Christian life and faith in the everyday. Check out the Faith and Coffee Brewcast at brewcast.faithandcoffee.com or on iTunes and be sure to subscribe. You can also subscribe to the Faith and Coffee blog at faithandcoffee.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash faithandcoffee. Be sure to click on that like button. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Be of good courage. Know that you are loved. The opinions expressed in this episode do not and are not intended to represent the opinions or official positions of any of the organizations with which I, Eric Letterman, am associated. Faith and Coffee is produced by Bad Coffee Productions, LLC, in Chandler, Arizona. 